This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with current Harlequins coach, Toby Booth. The former London Irish and Bath man discusses his transition into performance coaching and how to create an elite performance culture. I hope you enjoy. Toby, so thank you very much for doing this. I know you're very busy, obviously, um, with lots going on. Firstly, how's your new role with Harlequins? Obviously, you've been there recently. Yeah, well, it came a little bit out of the blue, so uh, it's it's an interesting one. Um, um, in that, you, when you get dropped into a season, it's, a, it's uh, you're obviously a bit of a double whammy. So you're trying to get up to speed with not just uh, the systems and what your role is, but also meeting. 60, 70 people and trying to get build relationships. So, yeah, a different challenge, uh, an exciting one. It's, um, as I said, it came out a little bit out of the blue. And um, I have a historical relationship with Paul Gustard and he asked me to come and give him a hand from uh, both from a role point of view, but his coaching team um, is pretty new, as in, in on their coaching journey. And as he as he put it, it's nice. It'd be nice to have a grey-haired coach, <laughs> to uh, to who sat in the shoes that I'm in, to uh, you know, a bit of empathy and you know, and bridge the gap a little bit. So yeah, exciting things. Um, I'm there till the end of the year. We'll see what happens at uh, end of the season. We'll see what happens after that. Um, but yeah, uh, a nice little opportunity to uh, you know to try something different. So obviously you mentioned there about coaching is getting into their start their journey etc I guess the question is why did you choose rugby or why did rugby choose you and why did you choose to go down the coaching route um <laughs> did it choose me well obviously I think you you naturally sort of migrate to things that you enjoy um obviously I played rugby a lot I played a lot of sport when I was younger football cricket rugby basketball you know and I think the whole the thing that I've always a team sport player. Um, I was always parts of, you know, enjoyed doing things with people and being part of, you know, things that are bigger. Um, I think that um, it happened to be a natural progression, actually, because I captained most sides I was in. I was interested in the leadership side of it and those bits and pieces. So I think probably from a skill set and an interest point of view, I probably, you know, was already loaded potentially to go that way. You know, after being uh, working in the construction industry and when I went and did my degree, I migrated into sort of the teaching side. So if you think about the three things there, you know, they come together, it naturally brings you towards almost a coaching destination in a way. So, yeah, I didn't go out saying, right, I wanted to be a coach at the start of it, for sure. Um, I think it became sort of a player coach and a captaincy coach and then started teaching and then I actually was uh, off to do something new when the England Rugby Academies came on board in 2001-2002. So I was in the right place at the right time and I'd also coached England students and England universities and a university team to BISA finals etc. So yeah, you know, I sort of grew into it really. Yeah. And so how have you obviously... You talk about the introduction of academy systems and stuff in the RFU. How have you seen that develop and regress? So, 
since this. Well, I think if you look at the amount of, you know, it's very, um, it's probably taken a lot of uh, good practice from different sports, football, and you know, certainly in relation to what happens in other countries. And so I think that, you know, if you look at the effect of academies on the standard of the game for once, you know, from a skill set point of view, and you know, you look at, you know, I remember Arsene Wenger, and I've had the privilege to meet Arsene Wenger because rugby coaches are allowed to go into football clubs because they're not threatened. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, he, he, he was a big one for his academy and about, you know, if you can't pass, you shouldn't be here. And I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think academies basically brought the standard of skill sets up in rugby and a professionalism to rugby to, to the game it is now. And I was fortunate enough to be there at its, you know, inception, as it were, and I think what they expected it to be to what it is now is different. I think it was meant to be a collaborative approach, which it still is. But ultimately, you can only serve one master and, and the clubs run the game in this country. So, you know, there is a little bit of, um, I suppose, club influence on the academy system itself and what, what you coach towards a, a theme or whatever. But the core skill set certainly has raised the standard of the game for sure. So I think that that's definitely had a massive influence on the rugby you see today. And we're at, we're probably at the stage of rugby now where you're seeing the first academy players then are now retiring. So there's no such thing as an amateur player anymore or people that have been out. They're very rare. You're Jamie Vardy type people. You know, they just don't, they just don't exist really. You get some late developers because of the physical side of rugby, but, uh, you know, from a skill set point of view, I think, you know, certainly from a backs point of view, it's very similar to football. If you're not in there at the inception, you will certainly will be the exception and not the wrong. Yeah. So in terms of, obviously, you start that journey at Cali Manager, how did you go about kind of setting the framework for what you wanted that academy to look like? Did you have dialogue with other uh, clubs and coaches or was it pretty much you speaking to people within the, the club itself and going, this is what we think we should hold our values to etc um a bit of both really uh because well, we were the first no one really gave us you know too much direction we had a lot of autonomy yeah. so we focused a lot on the core skills of the game we didn't have to be pigeonholed because you know you see it in a lot of sports when the manager changes or the you know the head coach changes or whatever styles of play change etc so you know we we needed to be more generic and more decision making based and and capability based than you know a particular type of player so we had autonomy to do that but obviously as as they progress in the academy journey you know there obviously is a refinement of what the team the first team require them to be able to do so yeah it certainly was you know probably the the core skill element and and how to do that or, or what that looked like probably came from you know, more central basis and the style at the end. And we probably just bridged, as you suspect, the stuff in the middle. But we were allowed a lot of autonomy on how and what we did that and was able to almost experiment within our own coaching and our own philosophies a little bit. And some of the things that I, from the actual playing philosophy side, that I learned then or experimented with then along with the stuff I did with the England students and England universities and university programs probably moulded the way I thought the game should be played. So they were very beneficial for me as well as the players. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, so uh, everyone talks in rugby because it's sort of somewhere between 
NFL and football and, and AFL and rugby league. So it, it's not quite as staged as NFL, but it's not as fluid as, say, rugby league or football. So there is an element of strategic element that you can use in, in rugby. It's like the, the chess, the game of chess within the, within the game. So, yeah, I mean, there are attacking-based philosophies, there are defensive-based philosophies. There's, there's lots of things, and, you know, you coach towards that. But it allowed me, for example, to understand that you're, you have to play a certain way um, in certain conditions, and we play a lot in the winter season, so you can you can't really have an all court game all the time. So your ability to manage the game, for example, for your key decision makers nine, ten, fifteen, for example, yeah. they have to have massive alignment and recognition of momentum. Now that means you coach in a completely different way to play, 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 or express yourself, express yourself. Everyone else can create. You can create the if you like the vision of that, but ultimately the people that decide for how you, on what part of the pitch and for how long you do that are basically those three people. So that meant that me, my management style and getting those people aligned to how I see the game and making them believers in how I see the game and how, what their roles in it and engage them. And, and, you know, it's become even more important now with modern people wanting to know why all the time. Yeah. Uh, you work with my son, he asks why a lot, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, son of a coach and, uh, you know, it's sort of, and, and that I find myself justifying that side of things. But the, you know, that whole mentality around, Different approaches for different people yeah. was certainly fostered in that in that era. So I think it's quite interesting. You said, obviously, the modern generation they ask you why quite a lot, which I think to a certain degree in your coaching is quite good because it makes you rationalise why you're asking them to do that to a point. Have you seen a big shift in that from when you started? You mentioned about uh, being a leader and stuff to where we are now. Massively so. I think modern people and it's funny. Well, so. Throughout my career, at the time you're talking about initially, that was very much around how the game should be played and a playing philosophy. As I've become a grey-head coach, it's been more about the coaching philosophy. It's about the message and the management of people to engage them to do what we all want to happen. It is a we now. It's very much a we. The the whole this is what I want is completely gone, and that's a generational thing. And I think that your language has to reflect that. I think the way you manage people has to reflect that. Because winning masks everything. The moment you're not winning, people will then revert to type. And if you haven't got the relationships to go with it, which is the management piece and the engagement piece, you won't be robust enough to see out the bad patches, which everyone gets. But also, you'll lose the group. And if you lose the group, you're finished. Yeah. So, so you were quite fortunate in your time at London Irish when you went head coach and you did quite well in your first year, I believe. You yeah. won quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which so, I guess the foundations that the people before you had put in place and how many work you'd done were probably quite a good environment to step into and be successful where you Yeah, I mean, obviously, so I went from the academy manager to having the academy manager with a first team role and then I became the assistant coach and then... 2008, 2009, I took over as head coach. Now, there was two things that there's, there's the underlying thing in there that made that transition easy. And I think the reason we were successful 
was the players asked for it to be me. Okay. Which is great. Um, player power that did exist then. Everyone talks about how it, it exists all the time. It's easier to um, appease the mod with, uh, you know, one culling than another. <laughs> so, you know, I think that... Uh, I think that that was very beneficial from a management point of view. But the relationship part, which is where you have to manage the change and the trust and the bits and pieces with to the resilience that you require mm. uh, to see it through, was because 50% of the squad were homegrown. So they were the players I'd, that I'd grown up with. Yeah. And if you look back in history, you look at people talk about winning World Cups, the amount of caps you need. There's familiarity and trust and comfort around that and security around that. They call it a lot of modern coaching terms, psychological safety. So that was naturally there. Um, You look at... um, So when South Africa won their first World Cup uh, under Jake White, they were all his academy kids because he had them at under 21. So there's, there's definitely a relationship embedding position that is required to be successful. It was less about how we played the game. Yeah. It was more about the cohesion of the group and the other side of the senior players. So we had 50% that were homegrown and we had 50% of uh, the stardust and more and, and more experienced players. Mm-hmm. So they had all that and the youngsters brought the energy. That team was at its very best in that period. Yeah. Those two years. So we in European Challenge Cup final the year before we went um, we obviously went to premiership final the following year we went to quarterfinals of uh, semi-finals of Europe and in that sort of two three years we hit the sweet spot with all of those things so I think if you put all those things together it wouldn't matter how we played yeah it's quite interesting because you're speaking a lot about the team cohesion and people being close I guess if you've worked with an academy level they have a certain level of respect and trust for you because you've helped them through their journey for a time when 18 to 23 people don't really know themselves properly yet they're in a you get the phrase child in a man's body which is can be true sometimes how when you're going into those more senior players like you alluded to there do you get their respect and trust um i mean that's interesting i think some people because of reputation have it you know they've been successful as a coach you look at you know Pep and Mourinho and people like that you know it's no different than that if you've been successful that comes with a, an automatic respect but even on their journeys they've had to go through the earning stage of it yeah. and I think you my own personal view is you earn that by how you conduct yourself and your consistency and the relationship side that I talk about uh, with the senior players the engagement is, you know, making it real for them. It's, this is your role in this journey. And yes, they still need to perform. You don't need to tell them how to perform. They've performed a lot, you know, at a lot more at that level than, than say, I have. And I think my, my unique part of that was I wasn't afraid to engage them in the what do you think here and I'm seeing this, you're seeing that rather than this is what you need to do. So I think the management of those sort of people is, is, is key and the engagement and once you know everyone understood where we were going and we got some success and given them autonomy of their own journey and I created the environment for that to happen, I think it became 
you know, much easier. The other bit of it is because I was coaching international rugby players and I hadn't played international rugby myself, mm-hmm. was I made sure from a credibility point and from a, from a knowledge of the game point of view, no one knew it better than me. Yeah. And I, I felt that was my price of entry. The amount of understanding I had for the game, and if I didn't have it, I went and got it. And the time and the effort that I did to that, it was well known because the players that asked me was because I would always be there for the players. I'd be always trying to improve my knowledge, to improve my delivery, to reflect, to do all the coaching practice that now is more, is more, I suppose, second nature and more usual. Yeah. Then it wasn't. There were people that were just parachuted out of the first team into coaching roles and they just do regurgitate what they've always done. Yeah. They didn't understand the why. Here it is again. And, you know, the reasonings and the adjustments. And, you know, I refer to it and a lot about this T-shaped coaching. It's about the width of your knowledge and the depth of your knowledge. And, um, you know, you need to grow that T as much as you can. And, and ultimately, in the early years, when I was in those situations, I manufactured, arrogant as it seems, and I'm not an arrogant, egotistical person, I manufactured that, that to happen by making sure I was credible. So where, what type of areas, where did you go and search for that knowledge? Are you, was it in just in rugby or did you go cross sports? Or? As I, get, I, th- I think in the early days, because of the nature of the roles, it was more a performance role. I'd been in development yeah. and then it was, if you like, performance. And actually the modern coach is both now performance and development. It's almost gone back a little bit because people didn't know what they didn't know. So... I use the players. They're the best. They're the best source of it. Um, they know what it feels like. You know, they they understand what it's like to be out there. So the empathy again by by default, you're now creating more of a relationship and a and a and a bond with people because you're not trying to be all things to all men. You're actually engaging them by using their knowledge. So I think that was quite a powerful thing to happen. Uh, and ultimately, then is that you've got to be authentic. Yeah. You know, I, I would hate to think my players, well, I walked, my ironically enough, my very first game for Harlequins was against Bath. Yeah. And I didn't know how that was going to go. Fortunately, it was at Harlequins, so which made it a little bit more, in, you know, I suppose less familiar in a way. But the reception that I got from the players and, you know, some of the, some of the staff was very touching, but that proved to me that they understood that it was almost the advert of a relationship, yeah, of it all. And the when I left and when I got a new job and bits and pieces, people have been very, you know, heartfelt and kind and respectful with how they've corresponded on that. So that that for me is, if you like, the subliminal feedback of you're doing the job the right way. You mentioned about speaking to players about their knowledge and stuff, which is probably a really good tool, especially if, if you haven't, like you said, haven't played international rugby, you've got an international rugby player there. What setting would you do that in? Would you do that on a training pitch in front of all the other players or would you sit down maybe with video analysis on and go, this is what I'm seeing from my perspective. What is it that you're seeing and where where is there? Of distance in our views, or where's that matching up? What kind yeah. of settings that take place? I think it's it's individual on the question what you're trying to ask. And so initially, it was very much on a one-on-one basis, and it was finding time and corridor conversations, and going to sit with people at dinner and lessing, you know, at lunch, and be more informal about it. 
Um, but as you get stronger relationships, you know, and obviously you've got different things, then of course you can have that in front of people and, 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 you know, even in a, on a, on field, on field session, because you're comfortable enough to deal with the surprises. Yeah. And, so, and when you're trying to get, and I refer to coaching sessions about, there's always a critical outcome for a session. Mm-hmm. You know? And if it's, you have to understand it's all very well being authentic and giving people input, but you've still got a critical outcome to, to achieve because it's part of a bigger jigsaw. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got to, I think the skill of, of as you get more experienced is knowing where, how far to let it go when you have to be decisive, what you do after it, yeah. getting people to buy in and agree in bits and pieces. And that just comes from experience and recognizing the situation. And how big a role do the, the senior players play in that in terms of, I'm not going to use specific clubs as examples, but I look at football and you've got the senior players that at points I can see kind of, you know, looking at the manager just say he doesn't really know what he's doing or I'm not going to buy into that. Whereas you've got other clubs that the players seem to buy in fully. Like I look at Man City although they're going through troubles at a minute, it feels like everyone buys in at every point pretty much. Whereas there's other clubs that look around and the senior players kind of go, actually, I don't want that manager anymore. I don't trust or respect or believe in what he's saying to them and get rid of him. So that process where you're giving them more autonomy and allowing them to express themselves and kind of mutual ground, how important are those senior players that affect the rest of the squad in that? Oh, extremely important. Um, it's a brilliant question because actually what you talk about I think is the biggest challenge in coaching uh, actually I think it's the biggest challenge in a work environment actually and even in a even in a personal environment because what you're talking about is is higher purpose so if we agree what the higher purpose of a team is and what we're trying to do then from that we know okay well what is our DNA of a team? What does it look like and the behaviours we want? And that's part of how we play, how we act, all the professionalism. Mm-hmm. If you are very aligned and clear on what that looks like, you can be as authentic and allow people to be authentic and allow people the room and the space to have an input because we all know where we're trying to go. And we either get closer or further away from that. It's as simple as that. The, the grey area that we're all afraid of becomes cloudy because we're uncertain about where we're going. So that's the team aspect, and you talk about the senior players. So you'll have a senior group that will help the group uh, manage and uh, align and steer the overall ship, if you like, along with the coaching staff and the management staff to a certain destination where you're trying to go. The danger comes where an individual's purpose so within that purpose that higher purpose that's the team type everyone will have an individual one so it could be playing international rugby it could be breaking to the first team it could be i i want to be this type of player or that type of player i want to do this there's and this is where this human factor is is really important the strongest organizations align the personal why and the team why really really closely and in fact sometimes they don't even know they're doing it they're just going along with it they're the strongest ones because it's not actually obvious what it is so if you look at 
as you say, you look at Man City, obviously you know that I, <laughs> I support. So it's an interesting one. I've been through that journey with them and you look at the nearest rivals, although they were flukely successful this weekend, <laughs> is um, there's a classic example under Alex Ferguson. There was very clear principles of play and, and what was expected. Remove the key figure mm-hmm. and that became cloudy. Now, modern football, this is why the director of football position now occurs and not a head coach, is because Chelsea want to play always the same way. Man City, at the moment, and it'll be interesting, the true test of the culture will be if Pep goes and if they still play the same way. And it's not about the person, it's about the team. And that's where, that's an advert of what we're talking at. The moment Ferguson left... And then we had Moyes and and Van Gaal and all those other people where at their own philosophies, they lost their way because recruitment goes to that. Players understand that. You've got to almost uncoach them with what they've done and coach them a different way. Yeah. It's an example of purpose over and not being clear. What happens when players get older or less capable to achieve that team purpose, they now have to worry about their own purpose. Yeah. They become insecure about it. Because ultimately, I used to be the man and now I'm not the man. Or I used to be in favour, now I'm not in favour. Or actually, what's that's the resilience of a team sport player. And whereas an, an individual athlete, it's always been them against the road or the, the swimming pool or the black lines or whatever. Yeah. They've always been in battle with themselves. Yeah. For a team sport player, that's a new concept. Because I could lean on him and lean on him. But all of a sudden, if it's now me, I'll support him. But now it's me, now... I'm an extra, more of an extrovert. I, I'm not very good at this. I'm yeah. not very good at looking. So that's going back to you know the original question. If we can all work together and all be in together and get to where we both want to go, they're the most powerful teams. It's interesting. Most people have read the Legacy book by James Kerr, and it kind of goes back to the leaving the jersey or the shirt and a better stick, and you found it. Yeah, and I think in terms of the level of success and what does New Zealand have is unprecedented really if you look yeah. at most teams it's really hard to strive to but I always look at them with senior players and they always lack of everything I'd want to go for a pint with them they seem alright they seem yeah. like good people Yeah. and I wonder if that's part of their success and the fact that you're Dan Carters and people like that the most senior players then keep the rest in line because you Let's be fair, if you're new coming into the All Blacks, you're not going to mess around if Dan, Dan Carter's doing as the coach is saying because you're not in a position. Sure. I think the, I think it's absolutely right. I think there's a bit before that, though. To wear an All Black jersey in New Zealand as your national sport, you're more important than the Prime Minister. So the higher purpose is so high. And actually, you wouldn't even dream. And actually, if you look at some of the All Blacks after they finish, they don't necessarily have the same behaviour and professionalism that they had when they were an all-black. And they certainly didn't have it when they were prior to it. They were better. but So even within that group, there's a fluctuation between when they are an all-black and when they're not. So that shows you the strength of higher purpose, team higher purpose, if you truly believe in it. You know, going back to probably a a less relevant example we were talking about, there was an expectation when you played for... Man United and Liverpool in, in their 
glory years of this is what it required and that's what it is. And in rugby, if you were at Leicester, you played like this and it was expected that you bashed each other to death on a Tuesday morning and a Tuesday afternoon and played tough on a Saturday. Yeah. So, if that is so strong, you've got a great chance because you basically, as I said, your, your, your personal agenda is almost, well, that's just what we do here. but that takes time and whereas coaches I think have now got to the situation where I think we're guilty of coming away from that little bit and everyone talks about controllables it's a different subject but I think it's relevant here where what you can control what you can't control what you can influence and the strategy if you like and how we play is the thing that's solely at the coach's discretion yeah where actually the thing that makes you do it is you believe in it, which is the attitude and the philosophy and the principles of play. And why you get out of bed is because you believe in it and the skill sets that allow you to do it. So overcoaching, which everyone talks about, is actually about you've got away from the mental and the mindset element of the game and the technical side of the game, the capability side of the game. Oh, 4-3-3 four, three, three will be everyone. Four, three, you know, and Pep won't deviate from 4-3-3 three, three, because yeah. he's got... 15 years worth of historical belief and self-belief and the trophies to back it up and the players that he's developed in that system to know that. The challenge for me would be if you take one player out of that and play in a diamond somewhere else, are they still the same player? Because ultimately, in a failure in a performance, it's not about not knowing the system. The failure in in any performance is either my mindset wasn't right or my technical game or my physical game let me down. Okay. Yeah, no, that's quite interesting because in terms of the mindset thing, you say that's such a key role in terms of... It is the, it's the most important thing. Why do you say that? Because it's your motivation to do anything. If you don't believe in what you're doing, and you don't have the belief in yourself that you can do it, you're already taken, probably, in my opinion, upwards of 50% of the performance away. You're leaving it to charge. So if you look at teams that are struggling, relegation or in around it, do you think a lot of it is the psychological factor? Of, so West Ham, a classic example, every year people go, West Ham are too good to go down. That's what they say every year. They, they've gone down at different points. But you look at the players that they have when they've been down, and some of them are very, very good players. Do you think it's their psychological thing when they go, oh, we're going to lose it again this week. We're going to, I don't buy into it because for the first half of the season we've struggled, so why would it change now? Or Yeah. Uh, this is, I mean, it's, it's a very layered question. I mean, there's lots of potential elements, and it's probably a number of things. Yeah. But, you know, to almost echo my point, as you said, too good to go down. That means technically they're good enough. So why don't they? So they're not engaged, either not engaged to what they're trying to do. So this game plan, this system doesn't suit me or I'm not prepared to work hard enough in it to make an opportunity for myself. If you look at the successful teams, what they've got more consistent than anybody else is what we defer as ZTAs, which is zero talent actions. It's what they do off the ball. How hard you work, how hard you train. How well do you push yourself? How well you recover? Have to play sixty games a year? Yeah. It's got nothing to do with skill. 
it's interesting. Miami Dolphins. I'm a big NFL fan. Miami Dolphins. They got a new coach this year called Blaine Flores, who came from New England Patriots. They introduced a TNT rule, which takes no talent. So if there was a thing where they'd made a mistake because mentally they just hadn't switched on or they'd done something inexcusable, they'll make, he'll make that group or that player run to that wall, which is quite a distance away from what I'm reading, to then come back. Yeah. So like you said, that thing of actually, it doesn't take skill or physical attributes. It just takes you to be willing to do it. And those actions of willingness, I guess. Are, yeah, and willingness can look in different ways. It can be, it can be open to being coached differently. It yeah. can be receptive to other people's points of view. It can be being on time. There's lots of things that don't require any talent, but any coach in the world, you've said, well, does being on time matter? Does wearing the right kit matter? Does working hard matter? Any coach in the world is going to tell you it's going to be more likely a positive than a negative. Yeah. Now, what we choose to do is then put attention on that side of it. If that's important, we have to place our attention. Otherwise, it's just a poster on the wall. So we have to bring those attributes. If we, they're the behaviours we want, we have to reward those behaviours, recognise those behaviours, enforce those behaviours. Because ultimately, this is about getting developing a player and a team to get to a certain situation to execute what you just said you would do and win. So naturally, some people are going to try and push their boundaries and they might be one minute late. And then That's going to happen. So how would you go about enforcing those little details? See, little again, details? it depends on what... It's like, I mean, I've been in different... And I've made these mistakes. <laughs> Trust me, I've, I've, I've spent lots of time turning over stones about bits and pieces like that. And you have to show significance in what you believe is significant. So if you don't, then they won't. So you, it starts of your team reflects you. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, it's not me enforcing it to them. It's them understanding why it's important. Because if they don't understand it, then they're never going to be able to, they can't resonate with it. They, they, they won't see its significance. Secondly, if they do know it, and then they consistently don't deliver on it, then you've got the wrong people. Because one thing the coach wants above anything else he wants his talent to decide. Yeah. That's why you recruit it, develop it, align it to how you're going to play. The ZTA stuff that we talked about, that gets you to the window of opportunity. Mm. And you consist... If I ask any coach, would you take 7 out of 10 for each individual? 7 out of 10, 7 out of 10, you bet your life they'll take it all day rather than an 8, a 4, a 6, a 5, a 7, and 9. And now, obviously... We're dealing with people, so it's yeah. never certainty. But coaches want certainty. They never get it, but that's what we strive strive to get. Because consistency in performance then allows confidence, self-belief, reinforcement of principles, and then it beca- you get further down the, ro- the road or the journey towards your higher purpose. So I've got, I guess I've got kind of two questions around this. First one is, in terms of recruitment of players, who... A rugby club, because we've got the record of footballs and whatnot. Who decides who comes into a rugby club and who makes signings or gets an academy graduate? And who decides principles of play, how your lineout's going to look, how your scrum's going to look, how your back is going to look, all of that type of stuff? It varies. Normally, it's the coach or director of rugby or head coach, because they different, same titles mean different things yeah. in different clubs. <laughs> which is very confusing, <laughs> but it does. So you can have non-coaching director of rugby's and you can have 
coaching director, rugby's head coach always coaches. You have passive owners and boards and others. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> um, but the short the short answer is normally on recruitment is the coaching staff in that group outside of the owners and the management of the of the group of the organization that we identify players that would suit us and improve us or you know replace people that are leaving to a similar standard or better um, and then basically you you then push it upstairs yes no we can afford it we can't afford it and no so that's the sort of the mechanism around recruitment normally mm-hmm. but that doesn't happen in some clubs some clubs owners you know Toulon's a great example this is what I bought you <laughs> that's great <laughs> we don't play that way yeah. so I'd love to say it follows a great model and it's a brilliant example, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and it's different in every club. But again, going back to the, to the whole thing, if we're very clear on what it looks like, if we all buy into it, those decisions, recruitment decisions become a lot less arduous and, and difficult because we all understand that it's either going to get us, cl- well, in theory, going to get us closer to where we're trying to go. Yeah, I guess the reason I ask that question is because in football, you do get clashes of style. So, the example I would use is Andy Carroll going to Man City. He probably is going to work. Not particularly mobile in terms of being able to press. He's good at obviously being able to jump that type of stuff. It doesn't fit their style of play. And you get it where clubs just buy players, buy players, buy players. And actually, they kind of get to the end and they go, actually, none of these fit together. The example I use at the minute. I'm a Spurs fan, so I don't mind sticking up a little bit. But with Arsenal, they bought Pepe for 92 or 72 million pounds or whatever it is. But actually, they've got two number nines already in Lacazette and Aubameyang. So in order to play three up front, one of them's got to play out of position. Yeah. Yeah. Where in actual fact, if they maybe said, oh, we're going to try and play a diamond, we'll play two number nines and not buy Pepe. Like Tottenham. Yeah. It, yeah. Might, it might have worked a little bit better for them. So the reason I ask that in rugby is because there's such variables in players, player sizes, player roles, all that type of stuff. The example I could use is Matt Banahan is a very different type of winner to Christian Wake. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So absolutely. in terms of the coaching staff, if you get if your thing is actually want Christian Wade in one v ones and we're gonna get the ball out to him wide so he can try and juke and go past people and you end up with Matt Banahan, who comes with a completely different set of skills that are equally valuable to maybe a different team. How do you go about filtering those players into your so, yeah, strategy? So, so again, that, that comes back to, I don't sound boring and repeating the same thing, is if you're really clear on where you're trying to go and what it's going to look like, one of those don't enter the building. Yeah. Now, and those... Uh, those decisions actually should be pretty easy the hard ones are you develop a player from an academy that doesn't fit your style they're the hard ones and it's often a physical thing over a skill thing and sometimes you just have to go you know there's players that have left Bath for example that have thrived in other clubs now that's over two things it's either their style suits them Mm -hmm. and from which they've grown and thrived and whatever. Unfortunately, it's normally the fact they weren't given an opportunity. 
So it's it's both. It's about the difference between winning now and consistently winning or understand we can try and win then and this is what we've got because the different the only different the why it's more complex in rugby is really around the wage cap because you can't afford to make mistakes so those situations you talk about might happen because you haven't got enough wriggle room to adjust so you have to manipulate but it comes back going back to the coach you can play, you can be an attack-based game, defence-based game, whatever, you, you know, this system game. Systems in rugby are no different to rug, into football. You'd see them, so they talk about them in rugby in relation to how you set your forwards up across the pitch. Mm-hmm. That's so, for in football, it's, you know, 4-3-3, whatever, 4-2. Four, four, in rugby, it's 2-4-2, 1-3-1, 1-3-2. It's where you put your forwards. Yeah. So the, the, those systems that are harder to see in rugby do exist. You need collision carriers, you need this sort of carriers, you need whatever, or you go, actually, we're not in that, we just need people that are going to run all day, kick and chase and whatever. So the great thing about rugby and the shapes and size thing, the analogy that people use, there's, there are still different ways to skin the cat. Yeah. The thing is, the challenge is creating the environment, creating the goal, creating the buy-in, and then developing and recruiting the right players to enable you to get there. Because it's fool's gold, oh, look at this great player over here. Because what happens is you get this great player who's thrived on a different team, you play completely differently, they get frustrated, they're now not playing, you pay this amount of money for them, they're now even more disgruntled, why am I not playing them? They then side with the other three people that aren't quite as happy with them not being selected. And before you know, you've got a little fragment over there. And then all of a sudden, that takes your time. And now there's only so much bandwidth to go around. Now I'll take my off the ball off what actually really matters is the team. Because now they're unhappy because we're not performing as well. Now to manage that. And and that's how it cascades to becoming a mediocre team. You end up managing the lowest common denominators and not pushing the team forward. Cut rewind it all back if I recruited the right people in the first place and we're very clear on where we were going now we were going to go there you get rid of 80% of your problems so would you if you were having a team together would you go 90 I've, I've only just learned this by the way yeah. <laughs> in the last 3 to 5 years it's yeah. taken me 15 years to realise that yeah because I, no, I can fix everyone yeah I can make anything happen yeah because self-belief and resilience and blind faith is massively important but ultimately, it's fool's gold. Yeah. Well, Pep says that, doesn't he? He says sometimes they ask him a question and he just gives them an answer and he doesn't know if that's right or not, but he just says it with such confidence and arrogance that he makes them believe that that is the right answer, which I think is quite interesting. To, to his players? Like, yeah. But you bet your life, he then goes and finds out. Yeah. Well, he, said he, he did that, with, I think, last year after they'd obviously won the title and they were trying to go for Champions League. But at that point, they already got buy-in. Um, someone was explaining to me the other day about the coaching, good coaching, you almost pick up, like, it's like poker chips. You collect a load of poker chips for your positive interactions with people and your things that they've done well on behalf of a little bit of advice or the work you've done together. You collect all of these. The negative interactions where you need to give them a rocket or you need to say to them, this isn't good enough, or you need to discipline them or the times where you might have given the slight wrong answer is like cashing in those a few of those chips but the aim is just to keep those chips there as much as you possibly can 
when you start going to breaking even and stuff is when you're struggling because you've put too many negative ones in and then they start obviously being unhappy, which with Pep, he would have a lot of positive chips from, I think it was Sterling as the example. Look how he's improved over the last however many months and years. Yeah. And he knows, or he trusts Pep enough to, okay, I'll give that a go. And nine times out of 10, it'll, it will work. Definitely. Um, I guess in, in make, making that squad, would you go 95% of like a prototype of what you want that squad to be and then have a couple of players that are like your wild cards almost that are a little bit different? So would you have like a blueprint of go, oh, right, we need our number 10s to say you've got three number 10s in a squad or something like that. We want all our number 10s to be, be able to do all of this. And then you might have your fourth one that is just kind of a wild card that goes, actually, he might be the one that, you know, he really entices the tackler to then be able to offload and all that type of stuff. Yeah. It's a really interesting. I think I think the, the short answer is yes in certain positions. Okay. In certain positions you can, certain positions positions you can't. Um I I did exactly that at London Irish. So I, I had two tens that played completely differently. Okay. For and the theory in my head, which I thought was valid to be, I still justify it to myself now, as you can see, um, is I had effectively in my head a wet weather 10. Yeah. And uh, let's get this back line exciting, let's play. Because I, I believe the game, we're in the entertainment business. I believe sport's part of entertainment and want to excite players, excite the, the fans, play a certain way. And, you know, that's what gets out. You're out of bed in the morning. But the pragmatism when he goes understands that you can't do it all the time. So I need to have flexibility. So I set out on this road and um, we we didn't probably perform to the sum of our parts in, in, some, of the, in some of those or a couple of those seasons while, those, while that dynamic was there. Mm. Because... What I didn't work out was twofold. Firstly, they're the most influential players you have. And as a result, they want to play all the time. So the management of the individual became more fraught. We didn't go to, right, it's raining, you're playing, it's you're playing. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the start of that. But ultimately, if you could go either way, you need someone to break, bring the game home and break it up a little bit, or you need to close the game out, you had that opportunity. That's the theory. Yeah. The reality was much different because what I'd done by default, I'd created, not by them, they were good as gold, but in my head, I'd created actually the two most different people almost against each other. Now, they got like a house on fire, yeah. but the team, the higher purpose of the team had become cloudy. What are we? Because their conversations with their teammates and their units and their areas were completely different. Mm -hmm. So I doubled the dialogue for everyone else to have. Now, on face value, that might seem not seem like much. But what I'd done is I'd diluted what we were as a team. Mm -hmm. I thought I was trying to make them more robust and um, be able to adapt to different situations. But I diluted actually what we actually were, and hence the reason people then became less certain, which meant we weren't as probably either energised or enthusiastic at different times because the person that drives that, in addition to the coach, is the 
is your chief decision maker yeah. and he was too worried about whether it was raining or not. It's interesting that those little dynamics. So, you so think you're trying to yeah, help and it, you know, massive intention. I thought, mate, I've set this team up brilliant. Now we can play both ways, and, you know, and it, it ended up we were, you know, we did okay. But I looked at what I thought I was going to get. I thought, you know, we're going to be an eight out of ten every week. It was close to a six and a half. Yeah. <laughs> those little fine margins. But if that the same dynamic for example on an outside back on the wing or someone that doesn't have to make decisions that has a different physical capability mm. absolutely you can do that because that's just playing their natural game yeah. where it became difficult in those decision making positions were I'm asking you to be something you're not yeah. and because I'm picking him and they think oh you want me to play like him they ended up trying to play like each other and both played five, six out of ten actually wanted to just be you yeah and I didn't make that clear enough. Yeah. It, it's something for me. Um, obviously, I've been in Bath now 11 years, so I've seen a little bit of back and forth. How was it coaching transition for Carl Eastwood and Sam Burgess, who had come from Eastman? Eastman, yeah. Carl Eastman, yeah. Eastman, sorry. Coming from rugby league across to rugby union. How was it for those guys in terms of that transition? Because... I know people say oh, it was rugby, rugby. From the outside looking in, I think that seems like quite a hard switch for someone to do, particularly for Sam Burgess in a World Cup year and all that type of stuff and pressure around that. Yeah. How was it coaching those guys a new coach? Um, I mean, there's a few league boys, but obviously I've, you know, those two are a good examples. You know, Shantane Harpo before then was at Bath, another league. So the rugby league thing's not a new concept. The key thing is, A, the individual and their attitude towards it. And there's been obviously a lot of successful players that have made that transition, but also the position you're asking them to play. The basic, the basic skill sets, run, pass, tackle, catch, you know, yeah. are, are still as relevant. The decision-making and the breakdown, which are different, and the functional roles, whether it be scrum, line-out, whether still different. But, you know, they're learnable. The two examples you meet were, I think, obviously, I think Carl Eastman was an absolute success. Mm. And going back to the start of play, we played a very rugby league type attack. Got again, got to another Challenge Cup final, got to another Premiership final, in the quarterfinals of Europe, playing a certain way with two out and out first receivers as the, as the parlance goes, which is basically two ball players, two tens. Yeah. Kyle had without doubt the skill set for that and also he'd learned the breakdown well enough to be very competent at it despite being a small guy that's because we were asking him to play 12 yeah. Sam Burgess we asked to play 6 or you know or actually fluctuate between 6 and 12 so we've doubled the amount he has to learn yeah. and also as a forward I've, I've yet to see many well I can't think of any off the top of my head rugby league guys that have played for, played in the forwards to a world class level because you have to there's only so much bandwidth to go around mentally there's only, there's a hell of a lot more learning you've got functionals you've got line out scrums more breakdowns you know as an outside back you hit 15 breakdowns as a, as a inside forward you're going to probably hit 80 so the functional roles are completely different so in a way, Sam was set up to fail a little bit. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd have been incredible if he'd have been able to deal with it. I think he probably could have got there, yeah. but it was too hard too soon. The rugby league and all, and also then the World Cup and all the stuff, all the stuff around it, the profile of it, and the fact he was probably one of the top three rugby league players on the planet. So actually, it's very easy for me to go back there and be a superstar. Yeah. <laughs> this is so hard. <laughs> and his motivation was playing the World Cup. Didn't have a very great experience. England didn't, and he was part of that. It's easy to go and be great over there. Yeah. I'm not saying he, that's what he did, because actually, I don't. Know, to this day, I don't know. But his experiences were less positive. His... Kyle's were very positive, although the first year when he played in the wing at Bath and I played against him probably didn't look as positive. Mm-hmm. But he'd make him, that's that Chris Ashton, very positive. Yeah. They're the sort of people that jump off the page. But it's probably because their experience was more positive. So the bit you talk about, you know, you talk about your poker chips. I often refer to it as the, uh, you know, people like hot air balloons. Yeah. So every chance you can, you put more air into that balloon to keep it buoyant. But if you keep puncturing that and sandbags keep adding to it and that but basket starts dragging along the floor, I don't care who you are, it's tough. And often what you have to do there is take it all down and start again. Yeah. So, you know, we are an emotional, you know, a, a lot of hot air. <laughs> Some more than most. Yeah. <laughs> and as a coach, you get used to hearing that. But I think that that, I think it's to do with the how the we talk about the rate of a sign of a good player is the rate of its in, speed of its improvement, mm-hmm. and but your speed of improvement is graduated by how motivated you are to do it. Yeah, if you have positive positive reinforcements, like anything, even yeah. as a child, if you if you go actually that's really positive, I'm going to keep that. Three to one, isn't it? Yeah. Three 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 times more likely to get a change in behaviour through positive than negative. So another question for me is, what separates like a good, very good, either international player or a very good Premiership player to the very top players in your opinion, the ones that you've worked with, you think he is outstanding? Uh, two things: the ability to recognise what's happening live and make adjustment within their own performance and consistency. Consistency in approach, effort, professionalism, attitude, desire, and in performance. Who are the best that you've seen or worked with? George Ford's the best I've ever seen, without doubt. You'd you'd come in at half-time and he'd be telling me what I was going to say. And... He was a student of the game, obsessed by the game, and was an unbelievable, from a coaching point of view, because he, he was like having an extra coach. Mm-hmm. There are players that are arguably more talented in their position, mm-hmm. but in relation from a coaching side of view, it was he was an absolute privilege to work with because of that. You just didn't, you, and you could then leave him to deal with that. All the buying and alignment stuff that we spoke about earlier, that had already been gone, and he could see it real and real. And he would approach training the same every day. He'd drive training, drive other people. It was an absolute dream. On a different leading by example, someone like Anthony Watson, who I have an exceptionally good relationship, and you know I've known from the academy age and 
um, he's the first to text me and I'm the first to text him and in, in, you know to, to stay in touch around his performances and support and all that sort of thing he doesn't know how he leads by example he just does and so even though the mechanisms are slightly different it's the ability the speed of learning and the consistency bit that, that really sets people apart and you know that's ultimately demonstrated by their actions so with him is it not such a vocal thing is it with Anthony more, yeah. no not at all I mean Anthony will lead he's happy to tell people when they're not doing things mm. and he'll lead on his little part of the jigsaw and as he's maturing getting older he's more comfortable and in that but in relation to he still wants to get better he still has the drive to get better he still wants to be the best version of himself he wants to be he'll do all these individuals he'll do all the extras and ultimately when he gets the ball something's going to happen yeah. <laughs> so he gets his reinforcement by a lot of outcome stuff and the frustration of him comes when he can't get a chance to influence the game as much as he would like. So his growth, because he doesn't play in the position 10 where he gets the ball 80 times, is how do I drive other people to a position of level of performance to allow me to then influence the game? So similar but different mechanisms. So you mentioned there about doing the extras and individuals and stuff. How big a part of that is in it for your time at Bath and how you London Irish? How yeah. big was that practice culture or... Uh, I, I hate the firm extras. I call them necessities, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they no, but they are. I refer to them yeah. because it's the, you know it's outside the training session. Um, I think it's an advert of your culture because it actually is a demonstration. That bit I talked about taking the poster off the wall. It's actually a physical action, whether it be a zero point zero 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 one percent rehearsal, or you know it doesn't have to be long or frequent. It could be a different skill acquisition levels, different levels of pressure, ultimately you're doing everything you can to perform at the best level. So I think that it's also something where you can develop people and their relationship with people to try and get them on their own personal journey. So I think it serves a, a multitude of things, being a better rugby player, but also an ability to for a coach to interact on a one-on-one -on -one and, a, and a more specific basis for each player, which is what they ask for. So I th if you've got a team that aren't practising their individuals, uh, I don't think you're going to have a very successful team for very long because ultimately under pressure, as I said earlier, it'll either be your mindset that will fail you or your technical or physical capability. And if you don't practise it and reinforce it, do it under game constraints, do it under extreme pressure, fluctuate between those bases of the skill ladder, I think you'll get found out. Okay, so with that in mind, what would a working week for you look like? You've got a game on Saturday, we're yeah. on a Monday now. Yeah. I guess guide it through as you as a coach, what you do, but then also what would the players do? So obviously there's a, the team... Do you mean from a team prep and an individual level or one or the other? Both. Okay, so normally, obviously, rugby is extremely physical. And in the last five years, it's doubled in amount of contact. And balling playtime is now above 40, 44 minutes. It's not in France, about 34. <laughs> but in, in the premierships, it's up, averages around 43, 44 minutes a game. 
ball in play time. Whereas when I played, it was about 23. But even the last three years, it's gone from sort of, it's increased by 10 minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in collision terms, it's, it's a lot. You know, you look, you, it's not unsurprising now to be, you know, 800 to 1,000 collisions a game, which is a lot. So the first thing, and the reason I mention it is because you need, now need to have such a feel for the physical state of the group each week. So you need to be flexible. But the general rule of thumb is on your first training day, you'll train at lower level to uh, implement um, a little bit of strategy, 30% of load, low level, not necessarily too high level, short, to get moving, get people up to speed of what's going to be coming throughout the week and what our our plans and strategy is. That'll be the first day. The second day will be functional roles. So your scrum, your line at your kicking games, your bits and pieces in the morning, and then you'll have a form of team session in the afternoon. Normally then there's either a day, there's normally a day off after that, and then you'll go Thursday will be purely put so that that effectively before the day off is about development and learning and um, physical and then you'll taper off into pure performance and polish shorter sessions more intense it depends on obviously who's running but running what but my preferred is a little bit of rehearsal in the morning low key indoors or on a you know artificial and then often we play like a 25 minute game intensity block and then you've got another day where they'll get together. It's really for psychology. We talk about the ref and just refer, rehearse things one more time if they want it. That's player-led. We don't even get involved in that. There's no actual physical reason for it. It's really more of a psychological crutch, if you like, for players and then play on a Saturday. So it's effectively a 2-1. Two, so two days on, day off, two days on play sort of cycle. Yeah. You have to have flexibility due to the load. From a player's perspective, though, where the bits between those sessions are individual review on a Monday, along with a team review in your meetings, which sets what you're going to do. Who would that be with? That will be with the coaches and one-on-one or units, depending on what it is, but predominantly. back coach might work. Yeah, so normally you have a team review, you'll have a forwards review and a backs review and an individual review in a week. Yeah. So this is what we did. Did we do it? This is what we wanted to do in our units. Did we do it? This is what you wanted to do in the game. Did you do it? If not, why not? How can we be better at it? That's for this week. But overall, we normally work, as you do, in a 12-week block. What are we going to try and work on alongside that to make you a better player in 12 weeks? So it's exactly the same. There's an extra layer of IDP, Individual Development Programme, on top of that. And that's normally centred around, certainly in my experience and, and programmes that I've led um, and influenced have been around their strengths, not their weaknesses. Super strengths. Yeah. Super strength. yeah. And your team sessions should be enough to develop their development areas. Okay, so when you, you mentioned on a Thursday or when that be the 25-minute game, yeah. game session, at that point, would they know who the, who the start of 15 is? Yep. 
So would your starting 15, the other group that you're playing against, would they mimic your opposition in terms of sets and lineups and all that type of stuff? Or would you just play? It differs. It differs. In different clubs, there's been different approaches. Um, depending, again, going back to your DNA of your club, if you were a very defence-oriented team, you'd spend a lot of time on negating and learning opposition plays and bits and pieces and principles. If you were very, the other end of the where you just attack, attack, don't care what they do, yeah. you'd probably spend more time on yourself. My own personal point of view is I normally sit on the 80-20 rule, 80% of us, and just be mindful of 20% of them. But the 20% that I look at would fluctuate depending on how controllable that was to me. So if you were playing against a team that were very predictable of what they did off line out, I'd use the 20% because I'm pretty certain that that training time is not going to be wasted and we'll get some added value out of that at the weekend. We'd still show it, but yeah. it's the actual training time. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you play against certain teams, you know exactly what's coming. So, yeah, of course, you you can implement policies and principles. Actually, everyone knows what's going to come. Saracens, everyone knows what's going to come. Yeah. It's just got to be good enough to do, deal with it. Yeah. And you can try a few things. But ultimately, I think you're better served on the 80, just looking after what you we're trying to do. Getting better at what you said you would do. There's a few tactical elements that you learn every week, but it's ultimately mastery. It's about mastery. And how how's the more coverage, just obviously you now get in rugby compared to 10, 15 years ago, the, the ability to watch games back and all that type of stuff, how's that affected um, like your lineups or your scrum routines, all that type of stuff? Because I actually had a friend who's a really keen rugby advocate um, and loves playing. He was saying that he goes to watch like local teams down in Plymouth area and they say they have to change their line-out routine every month or so because people get used to it. Is that something you have to do at the top level as well or is it just go, actually, we're going to keep our line-out routines the same, we're just going to be good enough to execute exactly what we want? Again, the judgment on that is the capability of your own line-out. How good is it, i.e. can it change or actually we're making a rod for our own back, so... Good throw, good movement, good whatever. So going back to that capability bit, yeah. the first question, oh, thing you need to think about. The the that's where the opposition bit is important because you can, with some unlike, well, I suppose in, in football, be fairly certain, and we announce our teams to the media, and no one plays silly buggers about it 24 hours before we play mm -hmm. and actually we pick our own team Tuesday morning and, they, and the players know from Tuesday morning who's mm -hmm. playing and they talk to each other so everyone knows who's playing so the knock-on effect for say an example is about line-outs is okay we can now assess the capability of them defending our line-out so in a seven-man line-out bore you with a few details but on a seven-man line-out You've probably got three to four jumpers. How good are their jumpers three and four? Yeah. They're one and two of them really good, but their back row jumpers, how good are they? Or are they collision? Or are they people who are good on the ground? If they, if we have an advantage there, we'll go with fuller lineups as a principle. Yeah. And we'll solve the problem a different way. We'll solve it on capability rather than having to learn a load of new stuff. 
and the same with the opposite side. If, if they've got better jumpers than us across the board, we'll go sure. Yeah. Because ultimately, then they've we've reduced their capability to contest. So it's it depends how you want to solve the problem. Yeah, a little bit of cat and mouse in terms of. Yeah, there is that, and you need that's why you see so much flexibility in different areas. The 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 big thing for us is about staying in front of the curve, really. But I would I'd be advocating changing what you do within what you already do, yeah. rather than learning new stuff. So it's kind of just having multiple. Hmm. Multiple facets of your game yeah. and going, actually, right, yeah. this have is, enough with this them, is my yeah. toolbox. That's right. I'm going to use this this week. That one can stay in there. A couple of weeks' time, I might need that. And, and you're mindful, they defend like this yeah. in this area of the pitch, right? So, what does that allow us? Our opportunities are potential here. But again, within every line out, you've got the capability to adjust to something else if you need. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I find the 24 hour thing really, really interesting as well. Just being able to sit down because I'd imagine. At the start, I'd have drive myself crazy going, well, I wonder what they're going to do here if they've got this player playing and that type of stuff. Is that something as a coaching staff, you sit around and look at their team or is it you just kind of... You do from a line-out point of view. Yeah. That definitely, because you adjust things and from a scrum... So from a functional role point of view, uh, from a nine and ten, left-footed nine, right-footed nine, bits and pieces, we want it might affect where you kick off, make him kick to the open side because then he's more likely to kick it open, which allows you to kick counter. There's all little nuances in it. Um, but unless it's the one, you know, if you've got, you know, a uh, 120 kilo winger playing or not playing, that changes your mindset. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, let's hope the best players aren't playing. <laughs> you know, that's still there, I think, any, when the team sheet comes out. Oh, no. Okay, <laughs> right. So you still have to check and double check, but it's all about probability, really. Yeah. In terms of advice that you would give kids starting out or parents with kids starting out who want to go down this route, that enjoy rugby and think it might be a profession for them, what advice would you give? Do you mean apart from don't? It's incredible. You know, it's given me an unbelievable life experience. I've travelled as a player and as a coach. I've been all over the world. Um, I've seen a lot of great things that I would never have seen. So it's been very good to me. And uh, I'm sitting in front of you because of it. So, you know, it is difficult though. It's a hard master to serve. So, you know, you better strap in for the ride if, you know, at, at a professional level. But that's not to say that you shouldn't play and it's a professional or non-professional thing. Rugby's, a lot of the ethos of rugby is still the same about Game for all shapes and sizes, enjoyment, good team spirit, camaraderie. It's often played by people of a certain um, a certain mindset because the respect element that's required. Yeah. You know, when you get whacked, you can't just start whacking people <laughs> yeah. and, you know, bits and pieces. So, you know, I think that's a really a thing that rugby certainly treasures and, and in my experience is still very much part of what rugby is all about. So I think it brings you some good life lessons. So I'd be talking about that. But ultimately, it's no different to any sport, you know, if you, or anything. You've got to enjoy yourself. If you don't enjoy yourself and, you know, and you might enjoy, you know, I enjoyed competing. Yeah. And whatever level, when I was playing championship rugby or playing England junior rugby and bits and pieces, or, you know, to even when I coach, I enjoyed competing. And when I stopped playing, I never played again from a fun point of view I didn't get the fun from I enjoyed the social with my mates yeah. 
and the camaraderie and all the stuff teams give you being part of something bigger than you but my enjoyment came from competing now I get that competitive bit satisfied by coaching yeah so I don't need that and if I want social I'll just go and watch (laughs) it's a lot less painful (laughs) on a Sunday morning so no it's a great game and you know I think that I think the game's changed a lot in relation to the very top level, the physical demands on it. And it's well documented about looking after players and longevity of players. Mm. But it is a very, very rewarding game, you know, in relation to what it gives you. And in terms of your coaching career, if, if you had or if you had a time machine time machine and could go back fifteen, twenty years and give yourself a bit of advice that you've learned now back then what, what would that be uh, it's probably what I started with you know it's probably come through in this interview quite a lot about understanding different levels of perspective uh, I don't mean that you know I'm sitting there in my rocking chair and my pipe and talking about mm, when I was an adult <laughs> what I mean by that is I see I see I can see the game in different elements now where I probably couldn't at the time so like I talked about the the satellite view of the mindset the attitude the principles how we want to play the game what we want it to look like and the processes and systems you require at the helicopter level to be able to do that and then obviously the microscope level of the capability to do that the technical tactical that sort of stuff or the technical and physical and skills I can now see the importance of that Whereas when I was younger, I didn't. It was probably just all rolled into one and week to week and no, not as much even, uh, sort of effort and intensity put on, okay, across this period, we want to still be improving in this and worrying about ourselves and whatever. It'd probably be around that, just having a better feel, a more deliberate feel for different parts of it. Uh, I guess the last question for me, this is something that I ask everyone um, on this, is who's the best player that you've either played against, played with, or coached with or against, and why? Um, I think, as I said earlier in the interview, 40 was very, very impressive in relation to obviously that I've worked with. I've worked with a lot of talented people um, and that would be an obvious one. Um, and you get drawn to, I think you you see what you like in people you see in, in yourself or you like to see in yourself the Johari window element of what you want to see. So, you know, but it's, it's, sometimes it's less obvious. You know, I like players that I've helped you know, get on their journey more rather than just being the high pro. You know, so your Ant Watsons and and whatever are, are, are incredibly important to me. But people that have come back from adversity and get past adversity are the ones that I really resonate to. So, you know, people that come back from lots of injuries and keep coming. You know, so, like a Matt Garvey type player who's obviously been captain of Bath and you know, and, and his journey and he's a rugby man through and through. Those sort of people are at Tom Dunn you know, recently. But they, those people have been throughout, you know, throughout a constant... I think that 
probably if I was to the person's influence, and it's probably because it's more topical than me. It's probably another coach that I've worked with, and you know, he 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 gave me the confidence to keep pursuing what I was doing, and stand by my self beliefs when I was probably like a player in a little bit of a down slope and wasn't really sure where I was going from a coaching point of view and, and that would be Todd Blackadder. He was absolutely incredible as a motiv- a people motivator, understanding different perspective and allow people to be very good at what they do. Toby, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.